Come on, Anya, you're supposed to join us. You're Anya, the co-host. Come on. Come on. Yeah. <laughs> Let's go. Yeah, we're waiting for you. Yep. Okay. <laughs> I gosh. hear you. I know. Get up here. I'm excited for the episode, too. Let's go. <laughs> and she's gone. <laughs> our third co-host oh. is being difficult. <laughs> you might hear our, our uh, what, fourth, fifth co-host uh, oh. screaming in the other room. What's she doing? She's mad because the doors are closed. Oh. <laughs> Jenna, you're just going to have to be social. Yep. Well, hi. Hi. I would say how's life, but I saw you two days ago. Amazing. Right. So I saw Kat for her birthday. Yay. She's 32. 31. 31. I don't, I don't know anything after 30 now for me. It's okay. I thought, I thought you were two years younger than you actually are. I thought you were my sister's age. Actually, two years old is I'm actually old as fuck. I just hung out with people who are 10 years younger than me, and it's always just interesting. Yeah. <laughs> I love them to death, but it's always just like, oh, yeah, I'm 10 years older than you. They were talking about high school. Like, one of them was talking about um, how long it's been since she turned 21. I was like, oh, honey. <laughs> 10 years. <laughs> I know. I'm about to be 14 years. It's insane thinking about how we're like supposed to be adults. I mean, in theory. So my (laughs) my aunt started doing um, a new TikTok series, um, and it's called "Things I Things I Wish I Knew When I Was Older." Coming to you now from a boomer. Yeah, and it's actually it's really cool. It's a good series, and one of her um, one of her TikToks was basically the fact that adulting is a false concept. Oh yeah. Yeah. She was like, even, even now at my age, I'm still learning. It's all, it's all learning through like trial and error. Error. (laughs) Again, listen hard. (laughs) Um, Yeah. It's like trial, trial and error. And then just, you know, figuring it out as you go. And that's exactly what she was saying. Praying you have good people who like, can I help you help you along the way and give you advice and yeah yeah she was like I wish I had known that like you hit 20s 30s 40s and you you expect to have it all together that's just not the case yeah it was nice having that reinforced because I have those days where I'm just like how do I not know how to do this simple thing yeah I just never learned like my vacuum broke we were just talking about this and (laughs) I only know about it because my vacuum just did that. So, so yeah, I have to get the belt replaced. Apparently, not looking forward to that. Well, hopefully that's the problem. I'm very much debating just getting so a new one. So my vacuum busted as I'm trying to clean my apartment. I'm just like cleaning, it and all of a sudden it's like stop working. I'm like no. <laughs> and so I wouldn't have known what to do if it weren't for my parents. Like my parents are the ones who help me adult all the time. I call my mom like mom, what do I do here? I'm like. I call you and I'm like, hey, can you ask this for me? What do I do? She's basically been adopted by my parents. It's fine. Yeah. Oh, man. Yeah. yeah, Adulting is fun. Adulting's fun. It was Kat's birthday. Rachel made me dinner. It was really great to come home to 
as well. I'm kind of doing that. <laughs> it was beautiful. I made the um the TikTok recipe that went viral. It's baked feta pasta. It's super easy to make. So if anyone out there is listening, likes really cheap and easy five ingredient meals like I do, you basically take a block of feta and you get a bunch of either cherry or grape tomatoes. You usually get probably like 30 ounces worth. You just throw them in a baking dish, do some olive oil, whatever spices you like, pop it in the oven 400 degrees for about 35 to 40 minutes, cook your pasta. The end when it's all done, drain the pasta and combine it all and it's it's beautiful. So good. I already me and my awesome self. I never uh, stick to the recipes I learned, so I already have oh yeah alterations and additions and yeah. <laughs> I had reheated it and I put um, garlic butter in it. When I okay. It. And then Parmesan cheese. And- Wait, everyone on TikTok has apparently been. Um, just doctoring the recipe. Like now there's a mac and cheese version out Ooh, there. That would be a lie. The extra cheesy. Yeah. That focus. Oh my. <laughs> I you guys, Anya gets the most doing focused that. face when she pees. She needs <laughs> privacy. I'll get them one of those uh, those uh, Japanese screens. Shoji screen. Yeah. yeah. I'll yeah. get them one of those. <laughs> you could get, I know. They wouldn't be able to find it if I got them. One of my friends back in California, um, they were really crafty and they had this like chest that covered the litter box. So they, they would go oh, around yeah. the back and there was yeah. a hole cut into it. And oh, they won't, they won't go into enclosed. Well, I say they won't go into enclosed things. And I thought that, but then I bought them enclosed beds and they all love them. But yeah. I don't think they do their beds in enclosed spaces. No, cats figure their shit out. Yeah. <laughs> Have you met mine? <laughs> I have. I think you don't give them enough credit sometimes. I live with them. I can't. <laughs> oh my gosh. Yeah. Well, you are listening to Difficult Damsels. Yay. That's Kat. Hi. That's Rachel. Oh. Like, oh my God. You can't change things up on me. <laughs> I change it up every single time now. You keep you on your toes. Shit. <laughs> and um, we made it to episode 10. We're on episode 10. We're on episode 10. Hell yeah. So welcome, episode Yay. ten. We should give a shout out to our friend. Our oh friend, yeah, we have Rachel. a review. We have another we have review. Another, yeah, let's do the review first. Hold on, I actually have to pull it up now. So again, I'm not as, prepared. As previously mentioned, mm-hmm. um, the best way to get this podcast out is to rate and review us. And if you actually review us. We will read it on the podcast. And Anya will thank you profusely <laughs> out loud in my face. <laughs> hey, she finally joined oh. us. <laughs> All right. So this review is from our summer 22. Uh, she says, let's start off saying this. I have never really been interested in podcasts, but Difficult Damsels is now one that I listen to every time a new episode comes out. I love the banter and the subjects that Rachel and Kat have. Highly recommend if you want to laugh and learn. That made me so excited. To I read know. That. So, yeah, no, thank you for listening along. And yes. that's what we've been trying to do. We figured yeah. we had a good. We figure we're entertaining enough yeah. by ourselves. We should share it with the world. <laughs> that you don't necessarily have to be into history or even podcasting, but oh. hopefully we're interesting enough to. I think we are. I think we I are. think we're great. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> yeah, obviously. <laughs> but yeah, so. Episode 10 is going to be Artemisia, the first of Korea. And that's 
Korea is with a C, so it's C A R O A. Oh, yeah. And I love that you've already started with Artemisia the first, so there's more than one Artemisia. There, there is, and I had to be careful with um, the research for Artemisia because Artemisia the second, they often their exploits get kind of completed. Yeah. So I only included stuff in here that I knew was our our Artemisia. Yeah. The first. Yeah. All right. So Artemisia the first of Korea was a queen of the ancient city-state of Halicarnassus under the Persian Empire. During the Persian invasion of Greece, Artemisia was one of the leaders of the Persian navy that served under King Xerxes I during the second Persian invasion of Greece. Known as a savvy military counselor to Xerxes by some and a ruthless pirate queen by others, Artemisia was a woman out of time in the ancient world and one of the few that earned acclaim completely of her own virtue through her own deeds utterly independent of any man in her life. Hell yeah. I love how I, because of the 300 sequel that Artemisia is, is Ava Green in my head. She will always be Ava Green in my head too. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> like it's, it's unfortunate that they kind of made her the exact opposite of what she actually was. Yeah. Welcome to but, Hollywood. <laughs> yeah. Like as far as the look, that's definitely how I picture her. Yeah. All dark and so, yeah, ethereal if, and beautiful. If you've seen 300, The Rise of an Empire, which was the sequel, um, Artemisia does appear in that movie. Just there's going to be some differences and we'll go over them. (laughs) So a little bit of historical context. Now, as Artemisia was born in the 5th century BC, it's time to find out what was going on in the ancient world during this time period. So in 496 BC, Sophocles is born near modern-day Athens, Greece. In 492 BC, King Darius I of Persia makes his first expedition into Greece, which will lead to the Battle of Marathon in 490 BC, the first official invasion of Persia into Greece. In 488 BC, King Leonidas I of 300 movie fame becomes king of Sparta after having his brother Cleomenes judged to be insane. In 486 BC, Xerxes I succeeds Darius I and becomes the new king of Persia. In 486 BC, also, the first Buddhist council is established at Rajaha. I think I said that right. I hope. <laughs> In 479 BC, the Chinese philosopher Confucius dies. In 469 BCs, 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 all of them, all the BCs. <laughs> Um, The philosopher Socrates is born in Attica, Greece. And then just to generally ground us in what is going on in this time period, this is the generic background. The Persian Empire dominates in Central and Western Asia, along with northern parts of Africa, and is slowly creeping its way towards Greece. Greece is not yet a unified nation, but rather a collection of independent city-states, and in the city-state of Athens, a brand new form of government called democracy is beginning to take shape. In Eastern Asia, Buddhism is beginning to spread across the Eastern continent, and in China, the Zhao dynasty is firmly established and flourishing. So that's our historical context. Hell yes. <laughs> right, so a little bit about Artemisia and her background. So Artemisia- I was going to say just a little bit, the whole episode. <laughs> I mean... Well, this episode, as we're going to find out, half of it's just going to be me explaining the Greco-Persian War. 
but I think it's important yeah. to like ground us in the time in period. What's happening? Yeah, what she's fighting for. But at least, at least let's let's get a little bit on Artemisia herself, mm-hmm. um, just to start us off. So she was the queen of the ancient Greek city-state of Halicarnassus. Um, this was the city on the western coast of the ancient kingdom of Korea, just south of the ancient kingdom of Lydia in modern-day Turkey. The city is located along the western coast of Turkey by the Aegean. Aegean agency? Yes. Sure. <laughs> I do have maps. She has the they're, maps. They're kind of small, but if you know where Turkey is, it's Oh, okay. Yeah. Yep. I will gotcha. provide these on Facebook so you guys can follow along if you so choose. You all will have the maps. So at this point in time, the Achaemenid Empire, also known as the first Persian Empire, rules Western Asia. Halicarnassus was one of the city-states within the Achaemenid satrapy of Korea. So the satrapy is a governorship within the Achaemenid Empire. The Persian Empire is centralized in modern-day Iran, but the scope of the empire consists of India, Turkey, and Syria, and into northern Egypt and Libya over northern Africa. But within the empire, you have satraps that essentially act as governors of the various regions because the empire covers a great deal of land. And these satraps serve the king of Persia, but are still able to maintain some form of autonomy and rule within their own regional areas. Artemisia ruled one of these city-states and was an ally to Xerxes I, who was one of the most famous kings of the Persian empire. We will get into that a little bit later. Now, a city-state is kind of what it sounds like. It's a city that operated with autonomy from other neighboring city-states. Athens and Sparta are probably the most famous city-states, and they are over in the Greek peninsula. Halicarnassus is one of the city-states in Turkey, but under Persian rule. Artemisia's father was Oligodamus I and was one of those aforementioned satraps of the Persian Empire. The name of her mother was never recorded, but we do know that she came from the island of Crete. So as you might have guessed, Artemisia's name derives from the Greek goddess Artemis, who's the goddess of hunt, the wilderness, wild animals, the moon, and chastity. And whose counterpart is a Roman counterpart slash copyright Diana. is Diana. Yes. <laughs> so another interesting thing about her name is that the Persian origin of the root of her name, starting with Arta or Art, means great, excellent, or holy. All right. <laughs> So she had a precursor to being awesome. Oh, yeah. (laughs) So next to nothing is known about Artemisia's childhood. Her life in the ancient texts pretty much picks up from the death of her husband, whose name is also hysterically, at least for me, completely lost to history. Of course it is, because he's not important. He's not important (laughs) at all. Yeah. So this makes Artemisia an incredibly unique female figure in history. She is not remembered as the daughter of a king, the wife of a king, or the mother of a king. Artemisia is remembered by history completely on the merits of her own actions and exploits. Thank you. This is not just unique to ancient history, but history in general. So following the death of her nameless husband, Artemisia becomes queen of Halicarnassus. And it's said that she was the regent for her young son, but from what we understand from Herodotus, I'll explain him in a little bit, Mm She continued to rule even into her. She's like, you just sit there, be a child, and I will rule. <laughs> I like this a little Listen, too much. Listen, I know what I'm doing here, and you don't. So just sit there and be pretty. It's fine. Lost kid. 
And Artemisia will go on to reign as queen in Halicarnassus from 484 BC to 460 BC, so approximately 24 years. Now, much of what we know about Artemisia comes from Herodotus, who was an ancient Greek historian that was also born in Halicarnassus right around the same time Artemisia was born. Herodotus was the author of the histories, and he is largely regarded as the founder of history in Western literature. Thanks to the histories, we get a very detailed account of the Greco-Persian Wars that we are about to get into. Now, Herodotus is largely regarded as the father of history, as he was the first writer to have arranged his historical accounts through systematic investigation. What he basically did was gather all the chronicles he could find, study, and write it all down, and then critically arrange them all together into a historiographic narrative. He's like, guys, this seems pretty important. Maybe we should put it all together. That's right. And learn from it. Oh, wait, hold on. We still haven't done that. I mean, no. <clears throat> we don't that's, do that. That's the thing about we it. don't do that here. It's <laughs> not a thing we do here. We don't learn. Um, but from here on out, we're going to refer to Herodotus as our no. history daddy on no. this podcast. Yes, but we are. She texted me that, and I'm like, what's happening? <laughs> she didn't give me his actual names. She just gave me history daddy, and I'm like, <laughs> he's our history daddy, okay? <laughs> so as a brief little history side note <laughs> about Herodotus, contemporary historians generally regard his work as being largely biased in favor of Greece. Just outright Greek propaganda. All historians are biased in some way. Well, yeah. <laughs> History itself is biased depending on who writes it. On who writes it. Yeah. yeah. I mean, but that being said, the bulk of the information we get from this time period comes directly from Herodotus. And it's managed to survive for 2,500 years. Heck yeah. So thanks to Herodotus, we actually know what went on in this part of the world in the ancient world, which yeah. is pretty phenomenal. Yeah. He gives us a, a large swath of work to read through, which is pretty cool. Most of what we get about the Persian Empire comes from Herodotus as well. And the Persians are colored far more negatively and lacking the objective viewpoint one would expect a historian to adopt. He's the first historian who can do whatever the hell he wants. <laughs> <laughs> there was no, like... You have to do this. You have to do this. Well, it, there were no guidelines. It's no, there definitely were no guidelines, and we didn't have anything that presented things in a chronological order. Everything was read from hieroglyphs and yeah. monoliths, word of mouth. And, yeah. yeah, but yeah. So he generally paints the Persians as your stereotypical villains and monsters. Mm -hmm. The thing about Artemisia is she was his one exception, as we're gonna find out. Now, our history daddy was apparently a huge fanboy of Artemisia's. All of his accounts, <laughs> all of his accounts of Artemisia are incredibly favorable. And given that he was born in Halicarnassus, it's likely that his opinion of her was formed in large part because he lived in the city during her rule. Mm. So this is one of the things he had to say about her during the Battle of Salamis. Okay, another quick side note. I don't know. Salamis kind of looks like salami when you read it. It sounds like salami. <laughs> That's what so came into my I'm, mind. I'm trying really hard not to call it the battle of salami. If you do, no one will protest. <laughs> anyway, so this is what he had to say about Artemisia. I pass over all the other officers, meaning the Persian officers, 
because there is no need for me to mention them except for Artemisia, because I find it particularly remarkable that a woman should have taken part in the expedition against Greece. She took over the tyranny after her husband's death, and although she had a grown-up son and did not have to join the expedition, her manly courage impelled her to do so. Hers was the second most famous squadron in the entire navy after the one from Sidon, and none of Xerxes' allies gave him better advice than her. So just as we have witnessed with some of our medieval difficult damsels, back in ancient times, the women who stand out do so by exhibiting so-called masculine-type traits. Manly courage, bitch. You will soon learn that it is right. womanly courage, Thank and you. there is an entirely different... Wow. Uh, nope. It's entirely different. <laughs> well, so in addition to her courage, the thing that makes her stand out is how clever she is. Yeah. And he... He points out the fact that Xerxes very much valued her counsel. And I think that's what makes her so interesting. It's not just that she was courageous and could command men on the sea. It's the fact that she could be resourceful. She was a strategist. And yeah, she was a strategist and she could actually point out the things that other people failed to see because she's a woman and we see things no one else sees <laughs> because we're awesome and we're like super because we're, we're analytical like yeah. we're a little more patient and we tend to see the big picture whereas yeah. men tend to be a little more narrow-minded not in a bad way just in a, yeah, just in a, in a way. i mean most of the time it's in a bad way i'm trying to help the men okay? we're gonna find out by the end of this episode xerxes could have saved himself a lot of trouble he could just listen to her i mean yeah but yeah. his pride um, got in the way okay, pride listen to a woman pride be the fall of all men yes that is going to be a short <laughs> now before we get into our story we need to set the scene just as herodotus would have done So we're going to take a couple of minutes to pause and talk a little bit about the state of the Persian Empire at this point, just to provide some context. Now, the Achaemenid Empire was started by Cyrus the Great of Persia and will go on to create the largest multicultural and diverse empire of the ancient world. Under Cyrus the Great's rule, he will go on to conquer and rule the lands from Central Asia, most of Western Asia, and into the Mediterranean towards Eastern Europe. Why do you need that much money? I don't understand. Because men just, just like to conquer things. I like, just, the Romans get all the way over into Britain. I know, it's just stupid. <laughs> like, why do you need all that? Because why? <laughs> absolute power corrupts absolutely. That's kind of, you know, that's the Jews, lesson Jews the Persians are. Before power just gets worse. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's why, Kat. Yes, you're right. (laughs) So the Persian Empire will eventually push across Damascus into Syria and conquer the northern portions of Egypt and Libya. And Egypt is is generally considered the crown jewel of the Persian Empire once it's conquered. At the height of its power, the Persian Empire will cover approximately 5.5 million square kilometers. Yes, we have more maps and we will (laughs) include them on Facebook. Now, our perception of the Persian Empire tends to be somewhat colored by our Western cultural perspective. I would imagine most listener exposure is limited to what they've seen from the 300 movies, which showed the Persians to be primitive-type monsters that subjected the people they conquered as slaves. But the reality was that the Persian Empire was one of the most cultured and progressive civilizations of the ancient world. Despite having their centralized government in Persia, or modern-day Iran, 
The areas they conquered were allowed autonomy to administer themselves so long as they paid their taxes and allowed for the occasional conscription of their citizens for building projects and also conscription for war. Oh. Nobody's perfect. <laughs> Nobody's perfect. We have to dominate everyone and we so, need to conquer it. So that part might not have been so fun, but it was far better than some of the alternative empires that would have conscripted the people they conquered wholesale. Citizens within the Persian Empire were also allowed to practice their own religion, and there were multiple languages within the Persian Empire due to the large swath of land it covered. So your potential Persian overlords offered you these options. Pay your taxes, help us build our massive temples and projects, occasionally be used as fodder in the war, but in the meantime, you can, cover, you can govern yourselves, speak your own languages, and worship as you please. Hell yes. From 492 BC to 490 BC, King Darius I of the Persian Empire had attempted to invade Greece, but was defeated by the Athenians at the Battle of Marathon. Interestingly enough, before this battle, Athens had requested help from Sparta, but they declined to offer their support. Now, the excuse Sparta gave was that they were in the middle of a religious festival. But the thing we have to keep in mind is that Greece is not really Greece at this point. There is no unified nation of Greece. This is instead a collection of independent city-states that are constantly at war with one another. And just because one of these city-states is fending off an invasion does not mean the others feel at all compelled to help. In fact, several of the northern city-states will even go on to fight with the Persians, likely because of their proximity to the Persian Empire. <laughs> so if you look at that map, mm -hmm. you have Turkey here, and then like you start to get Greece to the north of the Aegean Sea. Yeah those city-states tended to side with Persia because, again, Persia's right there. Yeah, and they're like this. They're bigger. Yeah, <laughs> in exactly. Every way. They are. Yeah, we're not going to fight them. Yeah. We're not going to fight them. Now, the Battle of Marathon was a huge victory against the Persians. It was one of the few times their attempts at conquest was thwarted. And within Greece itself, it proved a huge victory for Athens. Athens was not the military might of Greece at the time. Sparta was the predominant military force within Greece, yet Athens had proven that they could win a battle without Sparta. Darius I was unable to push forward into Greece after that because of a revolt that occurred in Egypt at the time, which pulled him away. Because again, Egypt's more important to them. Yeah. It was only after Darius I died and his son Xerxes I became the new king of Persia that the Persians would begin a second campaign to invade Greece in 480 BC. This would be a much larger and aggressive campaign. For the Persians, it was a chance at revenge. They could not stand to have the rebellious and uncivilized people of the Greek islands halt the domination of the great Persian empire. For Greece, it was their right to govern themselves freely that was at stake. And for Athens especially, another Persian invasion meant that they were the target. Athens had defied them before. They knew the Persians would not forget. Even the Oracle of Delphi agreed and offered this bleak warning to the Athenians. Now your statues are standing and pouring sweat. They shiver with dread. The black blood drips from the highest rooftops. They have seen the necessity of evil. Get out. Get out of my sanctum and drown your spirits in woe. So bit dramatic. <laughs> so that was the really interesting thing about the Oracle of Delphi. Apparently all of these prophecies were really spoken of and in this time period they 
apparently came true. That's really creepy. I was reading about it too, and they were trying to like, um, I guess historians and archaeologists have tried to figure out like what was the deal with the Oracle of Delphi, mm-hmm. and they they discovered hallucinations. Delphi or Delphi? I think it's probably Delphi. Oh. Whatever. I don't know. I'm, I'm just asking. Anyway, always correcting me. So sorry. <laughs> um, apparently, there were hallucinogenic fumes in the oracle, so that's where they think like these prophecies came from. They were like literally pictures. Do not do drugs, kids. <laughs> <laughs> Even if you want to be an oracle. <laughs> so the Athenians consulted the oracle a second time upon hearing of Xerxes' pending invasion. This is what the oracle said. Another dramatic. Oh, it's all dramatic. (laughs) Await not in quiet the coming of horses, the marching feet, the armed host upon the land. Slip away. Turn your back. You will meet in battle anyway, O holy Salamis. You will be the death of many a woman's son between the seed time and the harvest of the grain. The Athenians had only one hope if they wished to survive Xerxes. The oracle told Athens that only a wall of wood alone shall be uncaptured, a boon to you and your children. Sparta also consulted the oracle, and they too received a prophecy of impending doom. The strength of bulls or lions cannot stop the foe. No, he will not leave off, I say, until he tears the city or the king limb from limb. (laughs) Basically, the oracle is saying you're fucked. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) I when you said oh holy salamis, all I thought was oh holy salami. <laughs> That's what I thought. It's like I, want I was like, do not do this is a serious moment. <laughs> yes, all of these prophecies that come from the Oracle of Delphi supposedly happened, and yes, they will all come true, just as we are about to find out. Now, from what we know, Athens took the warnings seriously. Ten years would pass between the Battle of Marathon, where the Persians failed in their first attempted invasion and the second invasion that will be led by Xerxes. And the Athenians will be busy this whole time, preparing a fleet of ships on on the suggestion of a man named Themistocles. When the king of kings comes to Greece, Athens will be ready with its wall of wood. With that said, the scene has been set. So has your stomach. (laughs) (laughs) You guys, I don't know if the mic picked that up. I'm really going to be disappointed if it didn't, but her stomach just went, I'm hungry. (laughs) I'm always hungry. She's always hungry. It's not <laughs> There's Rachel's hungry, and then Rachel's going to kill someone because she is starving. Rachel's hungry. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so it's just about time for Artemisia to finally join our story. But before that happens, we have a couple more characters that we need to introduce. So we have three key players of our story. We have King Xerxes of Persia. Xerxes was the grandson of the founder of the Achaemenid Empire. Sirius the Great. And while Sirius the Great had been the prototypical warrior king, Xerxes was a man larger than life, yet ironically vilified and characterized by the ancient Greek historians. Herodotus paints him as this effeminate man, one ruled by eunuchs and the women in his life. He also lined his eyelids with the classic coal that we have come to associate with the people of the Persian Empire, so that's probably another reason you would like Oh, he's super feminine. Rich, he looks more badass than you with the coal on his eyes. Right? Just saying. <laughs> I do love a man. With oh my god, I'm, yeah, it's bad. <laughs> it's very bad. So Xerxes was no warrior king. He preferred to coordinate his battles from afar. 
Yet the story of inspirational Greek triumph against all odds could never be compelling without a terrifying and colossal villain to face off against. For Greeks, Xerxes was the boogeyman under the bed, come to write off with all they held dear. Our second character is King Leonidas I of Sparta. Of all the names I mention in this episode, this is probably the most well-known. Leonidas was the king of Sparta. When Xerxes led his invasion into Greece, King Leonidas led the alliance forged between the Greek city-states. This, is, this had been a rarity for the time, as the Greek city-states were notoriously independent, often refusing to work with one another. The Spartans were a notoriously martial people, ranking amongst the greatest warriors in Greece. Their society specifically valued competition and martial warfare. The reason for that that nobody ever mentions is the fact that Sparta had their own slaves, known as the Helots, and they were especially, especially awful to them. Oh, good. Like, they completely subjugated them, and once a year they had a special holiday where they could murder the Helots without any fear of religious persecution. That is disgusting. It is. Great. So while we we talk about this Greece, this unifying Greece that wants to defend its freedom, let's just remember that freedom was not for everybody. Yeah. Is it ever? <laughs> no, but again, in the histories, we, we hear, oh, the Persians enslaved people, but they never talk about the fact that Greece did the same thing. Yeah. Sparta did it. They did it emphatically. Yeah. There, there was supposedly... <laughs> seven helot slaves for every one Spartan. Ugh, why? So Leonidas was the epitome of the Spartan warrior and would indeed go on to become forever immortalized in the myth after he and his 300 Spartans stayed behind to block the mountain pass of Thermopylae so that the rest of the Greek forces could escape the oncoming Persian Empire. And our third character is is Themistocles. Now, Themistocles is probably the most important figure on the Greek side of the war. He was a politician and a general from Athens, and he was a new kind of politician because unlike the rest of the Athenian politicians, he was not a man that came from the aristocracy. He is what we would consider a commoner. He was also known as a populist, which made him popular with the lower class members of Athenian society because he represented the previously unattainable upward mobility of the lower classes. I just think it's funny when all the big heroes are commoners, and I'm just like, yeah, because they've had to work tirelessly to get anything. So they're not afraid. They do not shy away from hard work to get what they want. Whereas the lazy-ass nobles are like, I'm in here getting fat and I'm eating grapes and everything's great. (laughs) What's wrong with that? I mean, you have seven slaves for every one Spartan, like, why would you need to lift a finger to do anything? I mean, because when Xerxes <laughs> comes, he's not just going to kill the commoners. He's going to kill your dumbass. <laughs> that was the point. Not, that's why Themistocles was like, we need to work together because yeah. they're going to kill all of us. Yeah. Or there, is no, of us. there is no class when it comes to war. You are yeah. all fodder. <laughs> so having lived through the Battle of Marathon, Themistocles was responsible for convincing the body politic of Athens to invest more in their navy. By the time our story starts, Themistocles has succeeded in convincing Athens to build 200 ships, which will go on to make the bulk of the Greek fleet. So while Leonidas of Sparta was the commander of the Greek land forces, Themistocles was the leading commander of the Greek navy. I'm pretty sure you'll have to ask Chris about this because he's really into the, the military side of 
all history. But I'm pretty sure that the Greek, the Athens Navy was like top notch in strategy and they like utilized like aggressive strategies that no one had ever. Lay off the spoilers. Oh, man. No. <laughs> so sorry. I'm glad you know that. Because, yes, as we're going to find out in this episode, they were incredibly strategic. And yeah. that's how they essentially won. Yeah. It's pretty great. I remember I watched a show. I grew up watching History Channel. Same. I watched a show on the History Channel about their tactics and, like, how they, like, built their boats so that they could ram and stuff. Yeah. Sorry, enough with the spoilers. No, that's great. Like, that's exactly great. <laughs> Now, the first we hear of Artemisia is during the Battle of Artemisium. And Artemisia is especially notable for being the only woman among Xerxes's commanders that was present at this battle and indeed within the whole of his navy. It has been suggested that Xerxes selected Artemisia to command his naval fleet in part to embarrass the Greeks by suggesting that they were so weak that even a woman could beat them. <laughs> Lo and behold, bitch, she's better than all of you. <laughs> the irony, of course, is that Artemisia will prove to be one of the most clever and resourceful members of the Persian people commanders. Now, we often... Your bullshit patriarchy and shove it up your dumb ass. But this whole episode is that. Oh, I know. I mean, this whole podcast. This whole podcast is that. <laughs> patriarchy ruins everything. Everything. <laughs> Now, we often do not hear about this battle because it occurs at the same exact time as the more famous Battle of Thermopylae, which is the battle that was featured in the movie The 300. During the Battle of Thermopylae, the Greek forces numbered approximately 7,000 men and were led by King Leonidas. Opposing them was the Persian army rumored to number over 1 million soldiers. This was according to Herodotus, and while he is praised for his lively retellings of this period, Herodotus's estimation of the military numbers involved often comes under much scrutiny. Most historians readily accept the fact that the number of Persian soldiers was inflated, though we can't say for sure if this was due to deliberate exaggeration on Herodotus's part or simply a mis- misinterpretation of Persian numerical accounts. Probably a little bit of both. That's where I tend to fall. Yeah. Yeah. Either way, contemporary accounts put the number of Persians between 100,000 and 150,000 at this specific battle, which seems more reasonable. Nevertheless, the Greeks were still vastly outnumbered. Now, while this land fight was underway, the Battle of Artemisium was a naval fight that took place in the Straits of Artemisium pretty much at the same exact time. And just as the Greeks had been vastly outnumbered on land, they too had been outnumbered at sea. The Greek fleet consisted of a total of 271 ships. The Persians had 1,207. Of those ships, the region of Korea contributed 70. And although Artemisia's movements aren't really recorded during this battle, she is listed as one of the leaders of the battle on the side of the Persians. Now, the fight was largely regarded as a stalemate for both sides. The Persians technically won the battle, but just as they had won the Battle of Thermopylae, it came at a greater cost to their numbers. The Greek fleet was unable to defeat the Persian navy or prevent its advance along the Greek coast, but the Persian fleet was also unable to weaken the Greek fleet. At the Battle of Thermopylae, the Persians had approximately 20,000 fatalities, but they had managed to open up the mountain pass of Thermopylae to the invading Persian army. I just feel like... You know, when you're like, you're in history class or you're learning about history and that number gets thrown at you and you don't really understand that that's 20,000 people that died. It's, and you have <laughs> to think if 
let's say we're looking at even 150,000 Persian soldiers. That's approximately what, like a seventh? Don't ask me to do that. army? Yeah. That's a big chunk. But just the simple fact that you don't, you, you know, when you, you just... When you're reading about it, you don't even no, because you don't. That just doesn't factor into your brain. Like that's twenty thousand humans. History that always frustrates me is you you just get numbers and battle names and dates, but you don't get the context behind it. You don't you don't understand the scope of what this meant. Well, you just don't think about it as you know this is actual humans. Like for a lot of people, myself included, for for a very long time. It, it it happened in the past, so it, it's almost it almost feels like it didn't actually happen. Like it's a story. Like you know, you watch it yeah. on TV and it's a story, and you don't yeah. you don't think about it like. And that. you don't you don't realize that even though this happened twenty five hundred years ago, the world the ramifications that we are still live in yeah. today. Some historians argue that if things had gone differently, we would have had a totally different world. I mean, yeah, yeah, especially in the battles we're about mm-hmm. to cover. Yeah. Sorry, I digress, but I just... No, you're, you're exactly right, though. At this point, the Strait of Artemisium no longer held any strategic value to the Persian naval fleet, and so they withdrew the remaining forces of their fleet and sailed for Salamis. So at this point, it became clear to Xerxes that Athens and Sparta were going to pose the biggest threat. King Leonidas I of Sparta and his 300 Spartans that had held the pass at Thermopylae long enough for the rest of the Greek forces to flee, had all died. But just as the oracle had predicted, the lion had been unable to stop the foe. Leonidas was known as the lion because he claimed to be the son of, it's not Hercules, it's the son of Heracles, who was the son of Zeus. So he claimed to be descendant from Zeus, and that's where he was known as the lion. From Zeus, the rapist. Yes. <laughs> everyone is descended from because he couldn't keep it in his pants. Because he raped everyone, including animals. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Zeus. Zeus. <laughs> now, Herodotus tells AKA us... history daddy. <laughs> yes, our history daddy tells us that Xerxes' men retrieved Leonidas' body and had it decapitated and crucified in a fit of rage. This was actually a very uncommon practice for the Persians. They were known to have actually treated their fallen valiant enemy warriors with honor and respect. But Leonidas did not earn that right with the Persians because he was so defiant. I mean, yeah, he didn't because he kicked their ass because he was a better strategist in every way than Xerxes. (laughs) He was a better strategist and he also had quite a large group of helot slaves that he could keep with him yeah sorry to like knock on leonidas ruin the legend but (laughs) most legends have darker sides yeah they don't people don't talk about yeah did they actually dress like that like scantily clad warriors i think so i mean they just they didn't armor wasn't really wasn't that about it in the movies like it was nice to watch but yeah interesting yeah i wasn't i don't think i'll have to look that up but yeah, I think that's actually pretty accurate. Interesting. Maybe, maybe not. Who knows? Gotta show off your, yeah. your deep I mean, I, I do know that, like, Artemisia in the film did not wear armor like that. Yeah. yeah all, all Everything the in the film regarding her was just beautiful. Like, yeah. anything she wore, I'm like, damn, girl. <laughs> Everything you see of her in, like, the paintings, they show her in the, like, classic Persian robes. Mm-hmm. After the battles of Thermopylae and Artemisium, the Persian army was ruthless as it moved through Greece. 
they sacked and burned the city-states of Plataea and Thespiae due to the fact that they had refused to submit to the Persians. The rest of the Boeotia city-states fell to the Persian army as well. Athens was next. By this point, the citizens of Athens were evacuated and retreated south to the city of Salamis. When Xerxes and the Persian army reached Athens, they killed the few citizens that remained behind and they burned the city. The Oracle of Delphi's prophecy was fulfilled. I just picture Xerxes as like this overgrown child throwing a fucking temper tantrum. That's kind of how I picture it. You didn't do what I want, so I'm going to freaking murder you. It gets a little dark. (laughs) Well, so at this point, the statues were standing and pouring sweat. They shivered with dread. Black blood dripped from the highest rooftops. Athens had been sacked and burned. And this is when the Acropolis, the old temple of Athena, and the older Parthenon were all destroyed. So the ruins we have Fucking humans! That, that happened 2,500 years ago during this invasion. I, I was, never knew that. I was reading about, spoiler alert later, but I was reading about your question that's going to come up. And oh, yeah. It's just so upsetting that it was all destroyed by humans. Like Some of it was. Some, some of it was it. destroyed by earthquakes. Yeah. Which is also equally frustrating. Yes. Yeah. 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 That is a spoiler. Yep. <laughs> you asked me that question. I was like, God damn it. I got your research out of You're welcome. <laughs> and now we are finally on to the Battle of Salamis or Salami. So like, the Battle of Salami! <laughs> Can I just screw that every time you say yes. it? Yes. Great. <laughs> so the two forces would finally meet up outside of Salamis. Salami! <laughs> I'm not going to do that. <laughs> which was another Greek city-state on the tiny island between Athens and Corinth. Yes, we have maps. We will include them on the Facebook post. She's like our own little door the explorer. <laughs> she has the maps. I have the maps. Is there a map song? Is there? We should make a map song. Maps, maps. Gotta get the maps. No, I already hate it. <laughs> so the Greek strategy was to keep the smaller Greek fleet within the smaller confines of the Salamis Strait. Themistocles had previously observed that the Greek fleet had the advantage when they were fighting the Persians in confined conditions. Again, this is because if you create a bottleneck, it doesn't matter how many Persian forces there are. Yeah, there's only so many that can get through. That's when smaller forces win bigger battles. (laughs) And that's what happened at Artemisium. For his part, Themistocles was a bit of a roguish character that constantly kept even his Greek allies on their toes when it came to which side he was truly on. It's said at one point that he sent a messenger to Xerxes, claiming that Athens was prepared to surrender to the Persians and turn against the rest of the combined Greek forces. According to this story, he was informing Xerxes that the Greek coalition was failing and preparing to split and go their separate ways to defend their respective city-states. Now, whether or not this is actually true or just a play to coax Xerxes into a trap over water is still a subject of debate to this day, because it did seem like the coalition was starting to break apart. Yeah. Now, Xerxes conducts a war council at this point. Of all his naval commanders that spoke for or against his next move, Artemisia was the only commander to speak out against Themistocles. She had reportedly suggested that facing the Greek fleet in the small confines of the street would prove unnecessarily risky, and instead cautioned Xerxes to wait the Greeks out and let them surrender. The rest of Xerxes' commanders encouraged a straightforward 
assault right then and there. Because they're brutes and they're like, rawr. Well, I think it's also just, they're like, they're right there. They can't beat us. It, it's overestimating your own power. Yeah. And underestimating your enemy. Yeah. It's always a fatal flaw right there. So once again, Artemisia counseled Xerxes against taking the fight to the Greeks over water. And she was apparently rather blunt in her assessment of the Persian fleet's odds of defeating the Greek naval forces. From Herodotus, we have Artemisia saying the following. Tell the king to spare his ships and do not do a naval battle because our enemies are much stronger than us in the sea, as men are to women. And why does he need to risk a naval battle? Athens, for which he did undertake this expedition, is his and the rest of Greece, too. No man can stand against him, and they who once resisted were destroyed. If you do not hurry to fight at sea, but keep your ships here and stay near land, or even advance into Peloponnese, then, my lord, you will easily accomplish what you have had in mind on coming here. The Hellenes are not able to hold out against you for a long time, but you will scatter them, and they will each flee to their own cities if you do this. So it just does not make sense that you would, you, if you feel like you're losing a battle, united let's break up the band and go our separate ways I, and fight this big giant army I think on our own what it really came down to was the fact that they saw even though even though sparta and athens put up a great fight against the persians they were still defeated and the persians still had this huge number yeah so they were terrified well yeah but, but it just the, doesn't make sense to break it up break up the yeah the bigger force and scatter it. Again, you have to also keep in mind the fact that these city-states prior to the Persians invading were at war with one another. So it's like you have a coalition of very uneasy allies. Yeah. So trying to keep all of these people together is a difficult task in in and of itself. Herding cats. (laughs) So basically, you have all of the men at the table gearing up for a fight and placating to Xerxes' desire to show the might of the Persian Empire and defeat these pesky, rebellious Greeks once and for all. And you have the one singular voice of a woman counseling caution and patience. Unfortunately. Unfortunately for these men. Xerxes was not known for his patience. He had seen too many of his men fall to the Greeks. And he was utterly... So throw more bodies at them. I mean, they're not his bodies. I mean, <laughs> you can't bitch about all, losing all these people and then just throw more. Well, he, no was, plan. he was utterly fervent in the belief that the Persians were superior, not only in their numbers, but just in their very existence. Again, pride is the folly of man. Yeah. Now, if you he had... all l- suck. <laughs> accept it and move on. <laughs> if he had listened to Artemisia, things might have turned out very differently. And says every male to have ever not listened to his female counterpart. (laughs) And so, in September of 480 BC, the Persian fleet pushed forward towards the Greek fleet to make their first offensive move. Now, for her part, Artemisia contributed five ships from her own fleet out of Halicarnassus. But again, she's, I think she ends up commanding a total of like 70 ships. Now, Artemisia was known for her skill at sea. Some of the sources even refer to her as a bit of a pirate, um, but this may have just been colorful commentary added after the fact by the Greeks to try and villainize her. Either way, we do know that her reputation within the fleet was incredibly high and her ships had the second best reputation in the whole of the Persian fleet. Yes. 
In addition to providing ships for the battle, she personally commanded the forces of Halicarnassus, Kos, Nisiros, and Kalindos. These are Greek names. I'm sorry if I'm not pronouncing them. <laughs> she is not right. Greek. I'm trying. <laughs> I love how like pretty all Greek names sound. They're beautiful. They're just like, they're I, so I, flowy and fun. And I'm trying. It's okay. Hard. You're doing great. You're doing great. <laughs> All right, so in addition to being an absolute terror on the seas, one of the things Artemisia is especially known for is how clever and cunning she could be. So one of the things she did was she sailed with two different flags aboard her ship. One of the flags was a Greek flag, and the other was a Persian flag. She carried both flags so that in the event that she was surprised by a Greek ship, she would be able to switch out the Persian flag with a Greek flag so as to trick the Greeks into thinking she was an ally. And she did the reverse as well. She would sail with the Greek flag showing while closer to Greek shores and then flip it to her Persian flag at the last minute when she was ready to make her strike. Interesting. During yes. the sink. <laughs> oh, it's just one of our Greek ships. It's my. It's oh, God. It's Artemisia. Run. So during the Battle of Salamis, the tide quickly began to turn against the Persians as it became clear that they would need to flee. The Persian navy had the numbers, but the Greeks held their position within the narrow confines of the strait. By forcing the Persian fleet to engage within such a narrow space, their numbers ended up working out against them as their ships ended up colliding with one another. During the battle, Artemisia displayed more of that cunning and quick thinking she became known for as she ordered her ship to make its retreat. Herodotus reports that one of the Athenian ships recognized her and began a pursuit of her. Trapped, Artemisia commanded her men to charge their ship into another allied ship in order to make their escape. This allied ship contained the king of Calindius, which was a Persian ally, and it ended up sinking. Uh-huh. It's been suggested by some of the sources that Artemisia had previously quarreled with this king, so it's entirely possible that upon recognizing his ship, she deliberately charged it. Ram it. Ram it. <laughs> not only for her escape, but also to take the ship down at the same time in retribution. Two words. One ship. Exactly. <laughs> did you say exactly? I did. Oh, no. Exactly. Exactly. Whatever. I'm hungry, okay? Uh, it's clearly. Guys, she's about to get hungry, and I'm, I'm about to be in danger. <laughs> so when it became clear that the Persian fleet was losing, and she and her men were at the risk of being captured by the Greeks... She had the men aboard her ship take down the Persian flag once more. They in turn attacked yet another Persian ship so so as to trick the nearby Greek ships into thinking the men on board her ship were allied with the Greeks. And it apparently worked because she got away. Ruthless. (laughs) Supposedly, Xerxes and his men had been watching this sea battle taking place from the foot of Mount Gitsagalo. And uh, he like even had his throne brought so he could sit on it. What a bitch! I would be as this is why again I would die instantly in this time because I would, I would bring him his throne and be like, here, throw it over the cliff, go get it. <laughs> then he'd throw you and be like, you go get it. Damn it! I'm an excellent swimmer. So the stories all say that Xerxes and his men witnessed this incident of Artemisia crashing the ship into the Allied ship, but they mistook it for a Greek ship. And um, this is some of the dialogue that was recorded. (laughs) Master, see Artemisia, how well she is fighting and how she sank even now a ship of the enemy. 
And Xerxes responded, my men have become women and my women men. You're welcome. <laughs> if only you had more Artemisia. Yeah, right? <laughs> if only. That's your secret wish, Piash. So the Persians end up suffering a decisive defeat after being forced to flee. This was also a huge blow to Persian morale. Never had they encountered such resistance. They were pretty much used to just steamrolling over any and every person that they came across. And the Battle of Salamis is largely regarded by many historians as being one of the most important battles in all of human history. If the Persians had defeated the Greeks within the Straits of Salamis, their invasion of Greece would have been near impossible to fend off, and the growth and spread of Western civilization as we know it, starting with the rise of ancient Greece from this point on, and later the rise of the Roman Empire, might have been effectively cut off permanently. So just imagine if Xerxes had listened to Artemisia, practiced a little caution and patience, and took his time invading Greece, he might have actually succeeded, and all of our lives might have been very different. Instead of classical Greek architecture influencing our national government buildings here in the States, we might have instead had Persian architecture as the dominant architecture around the globe. I love how you say he, he, if you practice caution and patience. And humility. What, what is this humility Listen thing? Listen to the up? fucking women. Okay, he's also supposedly descended from a god. Everyone in the fucking mother was descended from a god at that time. You need humility. <laughs> still human. You still bleed. So Artemisia was one of the survivors that managed to escape, though not before recognizing Xerxes' brother floating amongst the shipwrecks. And she apparently is the one that retrieved his body and delivered it back to Xerxes. Mm. Now, despite having lost the Battle of Salamis, Xerxes still praised Artemisia as having excelled above all other commanders in his fleet. Yeah, because everyone else would have had the floor wiped with them. Pretty much. <laughs> she did so great, like, by, you know, ramming her boat into our allies to yeah. get away. Yeah. <laughs> he evidently praised her for having displayed the most courage, wisdom, and military strategy from the rest of his commanders. Now, Xerxes had ignored her advice earlier when she recommended that the Persian fleet exercise caution and put off attacking the Greek fleet to his own peril. Following the Battle of Salamis, he ended up convening another war council with his commanders. Initially, Artemisia had not been invited, but it occurred to Xerxes that she had been the only one to offer rational counsel before the Battle of Salamis took place, and so he finally invited Artemisia to join in. <laughs> He's like, you right. Come on. <laughs> According to our history daddy, Herodotus, Xerxes dismissed everyone else in the council after Artemisia arrived. Now from here, two battle plans were put forth. The first would have Xerxes lead the Persian forces into Peloponnese himself. In the second plan, Xerxes would instead withdraw from Greece himself and leave the bulk of the Persian army in the command of General Mardonius. Now, Mardonius had requested that Xerxes leave 300,000 men behind with him. Xerxes then turned to Artemisia and asked what she thought their next course of action should be. Yes, he's like, okay, you may or may not have been right the last time. I will not admit. <laughs> and I will not apologize. But in the end, help, help a guy out. Artemisia advocates for the second plan. She reminds Xerxes that if Mardonius should succeed, the victory would still belong to Xerxes because as one of his slaves, the deed would still belong to the king. 
bitch, please. But if Mardonius fails, Xerxes would be out of danger, and the failure would, again, not be his, would be the slaves. How interesting <laughs> that, that that happens. How weird. She goes on to say the following. If Mardonius were to suffer a disaster, who would care? He is just your slave, and the Greeks will have but a poor triumph. As for yourself, you will be going home with the object of your campaign accomplished, for you have burnt Athens. I wanted to make sure to include the dialogue. Yeah, to like I not liked it. downplay the fact that they didn't have a very high regard for the people that worked for them. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not going to just sweep that under the rug. We we get that dialogue from Herodotus. That is yeah. the other thing to keep in mind. Who's to say what actually was said? That dialogue actually yeah. was. Yeah. But that's what we get from Herodotus. So yeah. that's what we're going to go with. Xerxes does end up taking Artemisia's advice. And it's a good thing he did for his own sake because Mardonius will end up dying at the Battle of Plataea. This is going to be the final Greek victory against the Persians. And it'll be the last time they face off against one another. After the Battle of Plataea, the Persians withdraw their forces from Greece permanently, and the evasion is officially over. Now, once Artemisia and Xerxes leave Greece, he ends up sending her off to the ancient Greek city-state of Ephesus, I believe is the name. <laughs> I love how you look at me for confirmation. I'm like, yes. Ephesus. We're you are always that. right. <laughs> So this is the uh, the city off the coast of Turkey, and he entrusts her with the charge of his illegitimate sons. Fun. Yeah, she gets to play babysitter. She's like, I don't fucking want That's these. her reward for... Put them back! <laughs> like, well, I don't... Get it. Put them back! Put them back! <laughs> Sadly for us, this is where Artemisia officially disappears from historical record, and her fate is left to the power of imagination. Ugh. That literally... Like, fucking poster for the patriarchy. I've used you. I've gotten what I need out You're of you. I'm going to put you aside. <laughs> yeah. Be the babysitter. How about I feed your children to dogs and then walk away? So, final thoughts on Artemisia from the ancient world. The opinions of Artemisia are all varied, depending on which ancient historian or scribe you consult. We already know our history daddy was a huge fanboy that avidly praised her cunning and intelligence. I just see him like, <laughs> like today's version of like a nerd in a basement. <laughs> He's just a, with like oh. his little, uh, his little drooling over Artemisia robes and yeah, like, yeah. Oh, she's so she's so amazing. She's just perfect. <laughs> Sir, put it away. <laughs> the Roman historian named Justin wrote of Artemisia in his book History of the World. His name and was just Justin. It was just Justin. Justin. No, <laughs> no, I just like, it's such like a, a common name now too, no. where it's like. So when I thought, I, I clicked on the Wikipedia article Justin. and I'm like, is it Justin of Corinth? Like, what is it? It's just Justin. No, it's Justin. <laughs> <laughs> That's like Chuck from Supernatural. It's just Chuck. <laughs> just Justin. Just Justin. He's actually God's. So Justin said that Artemisia fought with the greatest gallantry among the foremost leaders so that you might have seen womanish fear in a man and manly boldness in a woman. <laughs> womanly fear in a man. Like, Bitch, we ain't afraid of a whole lot. How about even even womanly cleverness and strategy? How about yeah. that? Yeah. <laughs> how about we're better than you in every way, so get over your pride and let us take over. <laughs> we deserve it. 
In the Greek comedy play Lysistrata, written by Aristophanes, Artemisia is one of the women written in the play. So in this play, it's basically all of the women of the warring cities of Greece. They all agree to withhold sex from their husbands and lovers until the men negotiate a peace during the Peloponnesian War. Hell yes. (laughs) (laughs) And I guess um, we know what you want. (laughs) Artemisia is included in this play and she's compared to the Amazons. Yes. From the Greek position, Thessalus, we get a more negative viewpoint of Artemisia from the ancient archives. He regarded her as a cowardly pirate and makes note that after King Xerxes demanded earth and sea from the citizens of Kos, which was another Greek city-state, they had refused him. In return, Xerxes set Artemisia upon the island to destroy it. Now, according to the story, she took her small fleet of ships to take over the island, but the gods intervened and destroyed her ships with lightning, forcing her to flee. Yet she still took over the island. Oh, shit. She's like, you're puny gods. (laughs) (laughs) I defy your gods. I descend from Artemis. Yes. (laughs) Goddess of the hunt. I will hunt you all down. You guys are food for my dogs. And finally, we'll leave you with a couple of random facts about Artemisia. So she was apparently such a menace and a terror on the seas that the Greeks offered a reward of 10,000 drachmas to any man that could take Artemisia's head. What about women? Are we not included in that? I'm just kidding. No. Maybe no, no. Aren't allowed to hunt other people. <laughs> no, you're fucking gods or the <laughs> goddess of the hunt. <laughs> um, nobody claimed the ransom, obviously. For obvious reasons. They're like, no, she's scary. We're gonna stay here. We're yeah, we're good. Yeah. <laughs> so I guess I guess that ransom was put in place like during or right before the Battle of Salamis. Yeah. So some people speculate that the reason some of the Greek ships were on such a hot pursuit were because they knew they wanted that reward. They yeah, they wanted the ransom. <laughs> Meanwhile, she's like, Fuck you bitches. She's like, jokes on you, I'll kill my own people together. Yeah. <laughs> I am crafty like that. So when it comes to modern depictions of Artemisia, people tend to sexualize her and romanticize her life. American novelist Gore Vidal writes her as being romantically involved with General Mardonius. That was the... Uh, the bitch who died. Yes. Sorry. <laughs> exactly. He was the, uh, <clears throat> the general in charge of the Persian forces at the Battle of Plataea. And um, they failed. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, so yeah, he, like, his novel writes them in this, like, epic romance. <clears throat> and then in the 300, Rise of an Empire, Aoife Green plays Artemisia, and in the film she attempts to seduce Themistocles on her boat in order to bring Athens to her side. There's no evidence that either of these romances ever existed. Leave it to a man to sexualize a woman from history that managed to carve out a name for herself completely on her own. Yeah, because she can't do it by herself. No, she has herself. to use her womenly wiles in her death. That's all women do. Yeah. She just they use their wiles. <laughs> I don't know what womenly wiles are. Are you kidding me? It's it's when you like bat your eyes. No, 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 I know, but I'm saying like I don't know how to utilize those, obviously. <laughs> just go like yeah, you look like you're having a seizure. Should you? Should we call someone? Is she okay? Is she okay? Uh, yeah, those are her womenly wiles. It's just her womenly wiles. Like they're out of control, right? <laughs> Oh my gosh. It's just her womenly wiles flaring up. Don't worry about it. <laughs> um, apparently, this tendency to romanticize Artemisia in fictional accounts is nothing new. 
A ninth century writer by the name of Photius wrote a story about her falling in love with a prince named Durandus. And when he refused to reciprocate her advances, she apparently blinded him while he slept. Following the death of Prince Durandus, she apparently was so overcome with grief and heartbreak that she decided to throw herself into the ocean. Fuck off. Why don't we don't all throw ourselves into the ocean? Sometimes most we're okay of us if we're sh- rejected. Most of us cheer. We're like, like I can go be by be myself gone. and play video games. Yay. Hell yeah. I don't have to babysit a human. Great. These stories are all completely contrary to the stories of the woman from ancient Greek texts. Artemisia was a clever and cunning woman and a terror on the seas. Some sources even try to romanticize her relationships with Xerxes, even though there is no evidence to support this. What we do know is that Artemisia was one of Xerxes' most valuable counselors and revered naval commanders. If Xerxes had listened to Queen Artemisia of Korea and practiced the caution and patience she advocated before the Battle of Salamis, the world as we know it today might have been a very different place. Such is the folly of men. (laughs) Right, that was our difficult damsel, Artemisia I of Korea. Hell yeah. So, random question time. Was she more... It's not really random. No, I know. This one is not the random question. No, that's true. So, not so random. Not so random. Is she more damsel or more difficult? And there's no evidence, at least recording in the ancient Greek texts, that she was ever a damsel. No. Which I, I find really cool, because in a lot of Greek texts, most of the women are. Yeah. Be careful with the kicking. Is there a child right next oh, to your foot? Are you going to attack my foot? Probably. Hello? Hello? She doesn't know how to retract her claws when she's playing, so you I'm are sorry. you are dancing I'm, with the devil at this point. I'm used to butters, so... <laughs> Hi. Can you be nice? <laughs> yeah, I think my favorite, my favorite part about Artemisia is just the fact that she was so resourceful and kind of sneaky like she basically did whatever she could to survive herself and if you got in her way even if you were her ally like yeah. she would just ram her boat right into you yeah like she's getting out of there one way or another she <laughs> is going to live <laughs> yeah so just like i like she seemed very um confident in the fact that she was better than everyone sur- yeah. who surrounded her she she was both courageous but also just intelligent and yeah. smart she had the best of both worlds yeah. the best of the masculine traits and the best of the feminine traits yeah. which i thought was really cool hell yeah hell yeah she's a little balanced woman what a concept oh. <laughs> we should all strive to be artemisia yes and look like eva green oh my god that is the goal always <laughs> it's like do i want to be eva green or do i want to that's both all of the above that's uh, that's what are I you do. narcissist oh uh, that's what i should do i should get a i should print out a picture of ava green put it like where i work out be like goals um ava green is mine just like henry cavill no the fuck she's not yeah she is fight you i will fight you i will, I will fight, you. fight you ava green has been mine since the beginning oh. okay yes i own her yeah. <laughs> remember when we talked about slaves rachel <laughs> It's fine. I'm gonna be Persian. Apparently, it's, <laughs> it was a thing they did. Yeah, it's a thing everyone in the ancient world did. That's the thing. Yeah, like sure. Athens was the great experiment of being like, 
oh, let's actually elect our leaders. How weird. And maybe we should know people. It doesn't actually. What a concept. It doesn't actually um, make anything better. No. <laughs> what did Winston Churchill say? He, he said something. I'm going to misquote this, but it was basically, many forms of government have been tried and will be tried in this world of sin and woe. Okay, Churchill, calm down. He's not wrong. (laughs) (laughs) No one pretends that democracy is perfect or all wise. Indeed, it has been said that democracy is the worst form of government, except for all those other forms that have been tried from time to time. Yeah, pretty much. (laughs) And then I found another quote from him that made me laugh. And it was, um, the best argument against democracy is a five-minute conversation with the average voter. Ooh. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> oh, so goodness. that's Churchill. So that's a thing. <laughs> oh. Okay. So on to our actual For real this time random, random question. question. <laughs> yeah. So our random question, since we are dealing with the ancient world right now, is if you could go back and visit one of the seven ancient wonders of the world, which one would you choose and why? So you're going to ask this first, but I'm going to list out our options okay, so yeah, that people know. So the seven ancient wonders of the world are the Great Pyramid of Giza, the Hanging Gardens of Babylon, the Temple of Artemis, Statue of Zeus at Olympia, Mausoleum at Halicarnassus, Halicarnassus which is where Artemisia is from. Oh, okay. Yeah. It's like, that looks familiar, but also it's so, a big word. So I'm not done. Okay. okay. Colossus of Rhodes. That's a random fact. And the lighthouse of Alexandria. Now give me a random fact. So a random fact is Artemisia II of Korea is the person who commissioned the mausoleum of Halicarnassus. Oh, yeah. interesting. So that's one of the things that often gets like complete completed with the first Artemisia. It was uh, the second one. Yeah, this is what happens when you name people all the same. Listen. It gets confusing. The dawn of time, whatever your empire is, you have five names to choose from, okay? You you know that I am going to end up, like, dating and eventually marrying some guy who's, like, real into naming his child the same name as him, and it's going to... They don't work. You wouldn't I would marry not, that no. person. You'd be like, no, no, no. this is where I draw the line. I literally, if I'm carrying this child for nine months, you bet your ass I'm naming whatever the fuck I want to name. You're naming your child Norwegian god name. Actually, my uh, first name is uh, the first names are very. They, they were decided before my obsession with. What are your Norwegian. names? Uh, if it's a girl, it's Sersha, which is okay. very Irish. It's Irish, yeah. And then if it's a boy, uh, Raylan Michael. Michael will be his middle name, but I just really love oh, the name Raylan. Raylan. I don't know. I just really like so it. Does that come from anything? Uh, the first time I heard it was on Justified. That's Timothy Oliphant's okay. character's name. So if anyone wants to marry Kat. <laughs> yeah, those are the options you get. <laughs> <laughs> all of my animals, if I have dogs, they're all going to have very, very Viking really, names. I really like the name Artemisia. I love that name, too. It's beautiful. It's one of my favorite names we've done. Yeah. Yes, we've you done can that. nickname her Artemis. <laughs> Exactly. Party? Don't stop. I thought that, and I nixed it right away in my head. <laughs> no, I went there. Yeah, you went there. <laughs> All right, so you said you're going to have the answer first? Yes. Okay. The ancient wonder of the world I have always loved is the Hanging Gardens of Babylon. You fucking thief. Which is in modern-day Iraq. Um, Iraq. It's Iran and Iraq. Iraq. Okay. I'm, I don't know my why. Apologies. It's a pet peeve when people say those names are on. I don't know why. But the thing about 
the Babylons, um, I mean, this is really the thing about the ancients in general, is they say we've forgotten more information about the world and knowledge than was ever actually like created. Oh yeah. And the Babylonians knew how to basically um, carve into cement and um, their buildings and weave water through it. And that's how they were able to create gardens literally within the walls of this supposed, I don't even know if it would be like a fortress. So did you know they don't actually know if it they don't. really existed yeah. or not? Yeah, that was that like was they don't know it. if it was just like a just like a um, something mentioned an like, over exaggerated yeah. garden or not? But they yeah. were known for being able to do that with concrete. Yeah, weave the water through. But yeah, that's of the seven ancient wonders of the world. That's the one <clears> that <throat> they aren't sure actually existed. Yeah. But it's still my favorite. It's still like, amazing. I love the concept of it. So I have a quote because, you know, I mean, yeah. you, you, you asked me, you're like, think of this question. I'm like, God damn it. I don't know anything. So I like went and did some crazy aggressive research. And I ran into this quote about. I love the, that you do the research. though. That's cool. Gardens of Babylon. <laughs> Josephus quotes a description of the gardens by Barosus, a Babylonian priest of Marduk, whose writing is the earliest known mention of the gardens. It says, in this place, he erected very high walls supported by stone pillars and by planting what was called a pensile paradise and replenishing it with all sorts of trees. He rendered the prospect an exact resemblance of a mountainous country. This he did to gratify his queen because she had been brought up in Nadia and was fond of a mountainous situation. I, too, am fond of mountainous situations. (laughs) (laughs) But I thought that was cool that he did that, that, he did that for, his queen. for his queen. I do remember hearing that now. Yeah. yeah. The Babylonians were conquered by the Persians. They were everyone and their mother <laughs> except for the Greeks. They were, were they were one of the like main empires over on that side of the Asian continent mm-hmm. before the Persians came in. Around everything. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The other one I was going to say um, is the lighthouse of Alexandria. I was mm-hmm. always interested in that. Yeah. So I have, I, mine's a tie. So I would love to see the Gardens of Babylon just to see that architecture and yeah. just to be there. I think that would be just great to, I'm a big fan of like aviaries and stuff like that. So yeah. I would definitely want to visit it, that. It combines amazing architecture with like, ingenious engineering yeah really. that's what it is to get this oasis in the desert yeah crafted into the walls yes. so cool it's just so cool it's so cool when you when you can sit in a place and just admire the tenacity and the of man yeah yeah and and the you know stubbornness of man where that's how i that's exactly what i felt the first time um i was in a cab visiting new york and we drove over the brooklyn bridge and i saw the skyscraper yeah. landscape. It just blew my mind that men created this. I always love thinking about that. Like when you look at a piece of architecture or you look at an invention or you just look at anything and you're like, how did the first person to think of this, how did they, how come, did they come up How did that? they come to that? Yeah. How did they think of that? And then had the, the idea to continue and move forward and make it a real thing. Yeah. Like just bring something genius. from imagination into reality. Yeah. That's so crazy. It's, amazing. it's awesome. Yeah. But yeah, so I would definitely want to go visit that because it just 
Can I guess what you're I bet you're going to guess right. Is it the Temple of Artemis? It sure shit yeah. is. <laughs> <laughs> yep, so that was the second one where um, I, I love the goddess Artemis. Mm -hmm. I think her story is fascinating. Yeah. And then her Roman counterpart slash copyright. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Because the Roman gods are them. copyrighted. Yeah. <laughs> or, or stolen copyright. <laughs> stolen. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I just think I think it would be cool because it was so grand and it actually got built three separate times. Yeah. And then still destroyed because humans. Is it humans or was it an earthquake? Because I know it The earthquake. Lighthouse of Alexandria, there were like three separate earthquakes that yeah the lighthouse of alexandria it was an earthquake i think the statue of zeus and olympia was also an earthquake that would be interesting to see just of just because of how grand it was yeah but like also it's zeus so what do you think about how important the gods were to the culture mm -hmm. of the greeks at the time and what that must have done to everybody's psyche to oh, yeah. like, see the temple destroyed in an earthquake. It's that's like, like end of time. Yeah. That's like Ragnarok for yeah. for Norwegians. Um, yeah. yeah. So I can I can imagine that would be terrifying to see that happen. So you're just like, well, we did something to piss them <laughs> off. So shit. Like, we will sacrifice. Zeus is like, fuck this statue. <laughs> he would. He, <laughs> he would. Like, I don't like this it. statue. Isn't grand enough, so I'm gonna destroy it. You know what? Try Stop. again. <laughs> And stay away from my swan. <laughs> the um, Temple of Artemis is described in Antipater of Sidon's list of the seven world wonders. Uh, I have set eyes on the wall of lofty Babylon, in which is a road for chariots and the statue of Zeus by the Alpheus, and the hanging gardens and the Colossus of the Sun, and the huge labor of the high pyramids, and the vast tomb of Mausolus. But when I saw the house of Artemis that mounted to the clouds, those other marbles lost their brilliancy. I said, and I said, lo, apart from Olympus, the sun never looked on aught. So, well, that's why I want to see it. That just, again, the feats yeah. of man and just, such sometimes humans can be great. <laughs> it's just such a bummer. The only um, wonder that's left to us is the Great Pyramid of Giza, which is... Yeah, another amazing, amazing, amazing. <laughs> amazing well, it's so amazing that people are yeah. conspiracy theorists. They're like it was built by aliens. I'm like, mm, I don't think so. <laughs> it was built by slaves. <laughs> it was built by a lot of slaves over a very long time period yeah. too. Yeah. yeah, because it, it's the truth. People just can't accept the truth sometimes. No. It has to be this grand conspiracy. And it's well, like, no, the truth is worse. Well, yeah, well, people can't. For like things like this, like they're so grand and they're so amazing and they're such great feats and it's just like people can't can't wrap their wrap their heads around the fact that humans did this, humans put their minds to this, humans yeah. put their freaking back breaking labor into this and made it happen. Yeah. And it makes people feel insignificant because they haven't done anything. Yeah. That's why people can't accept truth of life. Life. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> Okay, we just entered therapy treehouse. I know, realizing right? it. <laughs> Philosophy treehouse. Philosophy. Duh. We've talked Pamphlet. about Pamphlet. No, we've talked right. about the folly of man, but we've also talked about the marble of man. Yes, we did like a weird duology. Duology? There is a word I just can't. I don't it. know what it is. Dualism. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. Well, you have been listening to Difficult Damsels. Yay! As always, we would appreciate it if you rated and reviewed us on whatever podcasting service that you use. Five stars only. 
five stars only. Um, but if you do review us, we will read it on the podcast. We will. My sources for this episode included Wikipedia. And then Kyle Clemens has an article on Fascinate.com that I also use. And then as a just general background, I listened to Dan Carlin's Hardcore History. Now, Dan Carlin does a series on the Persian Empire called King of Kings. It's called Hardcore History because of how in-depth Dan Carlin goes. Each episode is anywhere from three to four hours long. I remember the first time you told me about that. You're like, yeah, that episode's like three hours. I'm like, sorry. So the last one about Xerxes is five hours. And I get I mean good for I get him. <laughs> so excited when they come out. So basically, Dan Carlin is my podcasting history daddy. We can listen to him talk all day. We'd like I you as a it. guest on the show. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> the other podcast I recently discovered that I'm very excited to listen to is called The History of Persia Podcast. Ooh. That was another just to like ground myself into Persia because I mean, before doing this research, I really didn't know anything beyond the 300 movies. I yeah. I learned a lot. So yeah. highly recommend if anyone has ever listened to the history of Rome or the history of Greece or the history of Byzantine. Um, this seems like a newer-ish podcast. Um, it's very good. We recommend it. Go check it out. Hell yeah. yeah. All right. So you can find us at difficult.damsels at gmail.com. You can find us on Facebook where we're very active at Difficult Damsels Podcast. We are on Instagram, but I've neglected it <laughs> because it's just so, I just. But yeah, the, the bulk of our stuff is on Facebook. We will post maps from this episode there. And the maps. Thanks for listening. Stay difficult. Stay difficult.